the evolution of Bitcoin privacy has gone from creating doubt to hopefully, you know, in the future, making it basically impossible to link coins to a person. That is the key. That's where we want to get to. Hello there from Bedford, UK. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a very cool interview. I've got Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation, and I've got Bitcoin developer Chris Belcher on to discuss privacy. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up, we have the future of Bitcoin and financial services. We have BlockFi. Have you checked out their mobile app yet? I've been telling you about this for a, for a couple of months now. They've really nailed it with this. So I am a BlockFi customer. I've been telling you that for quite some time. I am an interest account holder. And you know, it's pretty cool to be able to access it from my phone. It's pretty cool to have that on the go. They've absolutely nailed the app. It is so easy for you newcomers to sign up. You can get started in just a few minutes, allowing you to earn interest borrow USD and instantly access your portfolio. You can open up a BlockFi interest account like the one I've got where you can earn money on your Bitcoin and you can also use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan. The app enables funds to be transferred directly from a crypto wallet into your BlockFi account and they've got a shitload of other stuff coming soon. They really are crushing it. If you're interested in finding out more and you want to check out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we have the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. The only place I use now for buying and selling Bitcoin. So what is it about Kraken? Why should you use Kraken? Why do I go on about Kraken every week? Yes, I know they are a sponsor. Of course, Pete, you're going to go on about Kraken. But I have a choice about who to work with. And Kraken is the exchange I wanted to work with. They have their world-class security. They are the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, whatever your problem, whoever you are, they will help you get that sorted. And they also have an amazing, comprehensive suite of tools for buying Bitcoin. So whoever you are, if you just want to buy Bitcoin, you want to keep it easy, you can go to kraken.com where it could not be easier to sign up. If you want to buy Bitcoin on the go, if you want to trade Bitcoin on the go, if you're at Starbucks getting yourself a Frappuccino, then you have their beautiful mobile first app. And with margin trading, futures and the OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to buy Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so on to the show today, and I've got my good friend Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation back on the show, and we've got Chris Belcher for his first time on the show, and Chris is currently working on CoinSwap, which is a alternative privacy tool to CoinJoin, and the Human Rights Foundation has recently announced that they are going to be funding Chris's work here, which is very cool. So I'm often called a lazy Bitcoiner because I don't tend to dive into doing the most complicated things. And there, there's a method to my madness. I'm always trying to keep my Bitcoin usage as close to what I think my friends will do and my family will do. So when there's really complicated things, I just don't tend to do it. I tend to stay away. That was the case before I set up a node. And that is the case with privacy now. I've, I found that looking into privacy, that achieving high level, almost like 100% privacy, it's really difficult. I did take a look at CoinJoin, found it a bit complicated. So... I've just kind of been sat back waiting for somebody to solve this for me, to solve this with UX. And we might have this with CoinSwap, which I hope we do anyway. So good luck to Chris on that. I do understand why financial privacy is so important. And I am well aware of why Bitcoin privacy at the protocol level is challenging, as it would likely remove the ability to audit the 21 million coins, which we know is so important. And we also know that alts like Zcash have experienced inflation bugs because of this. So look, I get it. I get it and I understand it and I agree with it. And... 
if there is a way we can get high level privacy with Bitcoin and it's easy to use, I'm going to fully support that. So I thought it'd be well worth getting Alex and Chris on the show to talk about privacy together and walk me through what CoinSwap is and what CoinSwap will be. Now, I did have a very small audio issue at the start of the show. I forgot to press the record on my Zoom, but I do have a backup which comes via my computer. So there's a very slight difference in the sound. And just for me, just for the first five minutes, you should be able to deal with that. Anyway, if you've got any questions about the show, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, have you checked out Defiance recently? Part three of my Steven Mnuchin series, Robin Hood, is out. This one is called All the Other Shit. So I previously covered all his kind of friends and his network he built up at the likes of Goldman Sachs and Yao. And then I covered his time at One West where he became the foreclosure king. Now, this week, I'm covering all the other weird shit he's been involved in. So you can check that out at defiance.news. And if you have any questions about that, you can reach out to me. And as I said before, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Hi there, Alex. Hi, Chris. How are you both doing? Doing well, Peter. Thanks for having us on. I'm very well, thanks. It's uh, good to get another English voice on. I didn't actually know you you were from England, Chris, which is great because we don't have enough English people doing this stuff. Um... Everyone will know Alex because he's been on my show like three or four times and he's been on my other show, Defiance. But Chris, you haven't been on before. So for listeners of my show, just tell them a bit about you, what you do, what, how you're involved in Bitcoin. Um, so I'm, I'm a Bitcoin open source developer and I work on a couple of projects in Bitcoin to try and make the to build useful tools around Bitcoin. So people might have heard of Join Market or Electrum Personal Server. They're the two big things I'm known for i guess in generally i work on bitcoin privacy i also i wrote a wiki article that explains as much as i can about privacy yeah that that's the the summary of me essentially i try and improve bitcoin fantastic well the reason we've got you both together today is i got a i got an email from alex and the hrf i think it was last was it last week alex mm-hmm. yeah last week yeah. A- a- announcing that the hrf I've launched a privacy-focused developer fund, which is which is great, and that uh, they're going to be supporting some of your work, Chris, which is amazing. So we'll start with you, Alex. Just tell us a little bit of the background to creating this fund because it's pretty cool, man. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's been on my mind and on the mind of the Human Rights Foundation for a while is that currently, if you are a developer working on, whether it's Bitcoin Core or uh, other kind of key Bitcoin projects, your current source of funds is either going to be, you know, intermittent, unpredictable, small donations from fans or corporate kind of contracts from big corporations, exchanges, for example. And it would be really nice to see investment in Bitcoin research from nonprofits, philanthropies, family offices, and especially academic institutions. And we just haven't gotten to that point yet. I firmly believe it will happen. I firmly believe that in the future, five, 10 years from now, every major university worth its salt will have a Bitcoin program or project, right? But we're just not there yet. We've had the DCI, which you know is, is limited in as much as it's, it's one of the only ones out there. But I really wanted to have HRF play a role in this and Luckily, a, a, a Bitcoiner who had been following our work for a while got in touch with us and said, hey, you know, he wants to stay anonymous, but he says, I want to endow HRF with some funds to allow you guys to uh, start supporting Bitcoin development with an eye on privacy. And he specifically wanted to sort of support more core work as opposed to uh, second, second layer kind of technologies. 
And that was an amazing thing to hear. And of course, what we did is we powwowed and talked to some experts, some friends, and uh, you know, heard from them about who, you know who they'd recommend we support. And Chris's name came up kind of unanimously. And we had been very, of course, intrigued by the coin swap um, revitalization of the idea that had been kind of dormant for a long time, and his commitment to making it happen, and and then his explanations of why it could be, if if kind of like implemented properly, really groundbreaking. And at HRF, we're obviously looking at how can we make better tools for human rights activists around the world who are at risk. And there couldn't be a more important tool, you know, in my mind than making Bitcoin more private. Because when you make Bitcoin more private, you make it more resilient, you make it more decentralized, you make it more resistant to state attack, you make it more usable. All these things are sort of intertwined. So really excited to start this, not only because hopefully it'll help make Bitcoin stronger, but also because hopefully it'll have ripple effects in a wider ecosystem and encourage more and more people to get involved uh, with with Bitcoin funding, I mean, maybe one day you see Amnesty International funding Bitcoin devs. That'd be great. But you know, we're 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 a ways away from that. But we we can we can start with this. Well, it's a very cool thing that HRF are doing, and it's very cool that you've got a Bitcoin supporting you with this. Um, uh, this question will go to both of you, but I'll start with you, Alex, because I'm, I'm going to word it slightly different for you. But why is privacy so important? You you and I discussed this recently. We shared a panel at the Mazari online event. Uh, with a another chain analysis company, but just talk to me why big, uh, privacy is so important with regards to finances. Yeah, I mean, to me, you have different kinds of privacy. You have communications privacy, you have data privacy. To me, financial privacy is so existential, I would say. If we don't have financial privacy, we're not going to have democracy or open societies in the future. And this is because of technology and advancing technology. This wasn't the case maybe 30 years ago, but now we have like exponentially growing and adapting and evolving AI and big data algorithms that can like sort all these data points about citizens and their behaviors and start to model them and allows governments and authorities and corporations to both kind of influence, incentivize, and also sort of predict what citizens and individuals are going to do. And in that climate, we face kind of an end game where if we don't have privacy, we will all become sheep. It's, it's inevitable. It's completely inevitable. It's like the sort of totalitarian end game. And maybe it's like kind of a frog boiling in water scenario where we kind of all just get used to it. But one day you'll wake up and you'll have no freedom left, right? If we have financial privacy and, and privacy in other forms, then that's impossible because if you want to build a big brother, the big brother needs to eat your data. And if it's not eating your data, it can't grow very large. So if we can protect ourselves and make it more difficult for authorities to arbitrarily know stuff about us that, that they don't need to know, if we make it impossible for them to do mass social surveillance, then they can't do social engineering. And you know, the, the, then slippery slope doesn't end in concentration camps and gulags like it has done for the Chinese people in Xinjiang. If we have privacy, we can stop that slippery slope. And there's nothing more important to me in today's day and age when it comes to our technological advancements and how fast we're growing in that particular area than privacy. It's our single best weapon against that sort of horrible dystopic outcome. And Chris, you as a Bitcoin developer, privacy is obviously something important to you. You wrote, was it 21,000 words on it in the on the Bitcoin wiki? 
Yeah, that's right. And I completely agree with Alex that there's a, a privacy is essential for human dignity and freedom and all those things. Uh, another thing, kind of on a technical level, privacy in Bitcoin is also essential for fungibility. That's this property of, you know, properties of money that has to be divisible, portable, durable, all those things. And something on that list is fungibility, which is that every unit is the same as every other unit. Uh, you know, like every gold atom is the same as every other gold atom. And if Bitcoin doesn't have that, that means you won't be able to accept payment in it without, for example, running a big blacklist or running a consulting some kind of centralized database. And if that were to be the like, if that nightmare scenario were to happen, that you can't accept Bitcoin without talking to Chainalysis, for example, then the decentralization would end. Then it would no longer be a decentralized currency. Um, so just from a technical level, it's essential for the project to succeed. But why yourself, Chris, were you drawn to the privacy aspect of Bitcoin? Because as a developer, as a core developer, I expect there's many different aspects of Bitcoin you can work on. But is there a specific reason that you felt drawn to privacy? Yeah, I just thought it was important and a big unsolved problem. The way I saw it, that Bitcoin solves this problem of the double spend problem, for which coin is spent first. But as a as a kind of side effect, as a cost, everyone's transaction is visible to everyone else. And um it just seemed like a big unsolved problem and quite an interesting thing to work on and, and important. So I went in that direction. All right, Chris. So the next thing I need to talk about with you is on a personal level, like I've said to you, my show tends to be designed for, uh, Dan Held Dan put out a tweet storm today. He said, I, I'm, I'm at the top of the funnel. I create a broad and open show for as many people as possible. But like in doing so, in terms of Bitcoin myself, I'm a Bitcoiner. I have been for three years. I hold Bitcoin. But I don't take care of my privacy, right? When I look at something like your 21,000 word wiki, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I should really read through this. But then I'm like, ah, this is just going to be too much work. And I end up just ignoring it and just kind of accepting for myself that privacy is something I don't personally have right now. It's almost something I'm waiting to be completely abstracted away from me. Is that the ultimate goal? Or do you think as a Bitcoiner, this is something I should be taking responsible, responsibility for? Well, for the Privacy Wiki, that wasn't aimed at uh, common users. I was actually aiming it to other developers um, because <sighs> there were, there were the, all the information was actually out there. It was in academic papers and it was in talks and it was in blog posts, but it wasn't ever collected all in one place. So it meant if there was a wallet developer or, or some power user or something like someone running a, a business who wanted to keep take care of their privacy, there was no one place they could actually look and that was my aim for doing that and, and a few other reasons as well. But that was the main aim. So, I, I yeah, I, I agree with you that one day there should be a, a wallet. Someone will build a wallet or all the merchants will just take these privacy things that will be the best standard. And an ordinary user will just download something on their smartphone or their computer and it will just work. And they'll be as private as they can be. But, of course, there's a limit to that because generally on, on hardware, like if you have certain hardware, then the... There'll be limitations in that as well. Like the different, for example, on a smartphone, a different apps might spy on you and then send information by phoning home to a server. And if they can spy on your Bitcoin information, then that'll be a privacy break. So ideally, developers will solve the whole problem, but in you know, users will have to do something. Maybe they'll just not choose certain products to have. Yeah, I guess there's a range of things, right? There's there's uh, people can spy on you and know that you're a Bitcoiner, um, spy on the network level or on your phone. But there's also the ability to spy on where you're spending your Bitcoin and, and, and the transactions you're doing. I guess that there are different problems that be, that are solved in different ways. 
Yeah, that's right. That they I I emphasize this quite a lot in my blog post that you every user, if they're interested in this, has to think about that threat model that who are they actually hiding from? Like are you just hiding so that your neighbor doesn't know that you buy I don't know, something embarrassing or are you hiding from you know, the Chinese government? And they're, they're two different threat models and you have to think about that when you choose which tools you use. And then they'll have different solutions like, okay, so for example, if someone wants to be really, really private, they might have um, they might have an application which runs over Tor and that uses much more, it's a lot slower, it has a higher latency and uses more bandwidth. And that might not be necessarily appropriate for everyone. Like if they're in, if their threat model is just their neighbor, then maybe they don't need Tor. Right. So, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And just to comment on that, I think that we have precedent uh, legally, morally, conceptually for what private money looks like. And that's cash, right? Paper money. And when you buy something with paper money, you don't reveal anything about yourself. When you make a purchase, the merchant doesn't know anything about you. And that was fine for many, many decades, millennia, et cetera. Now we're entering into a new age when you do a swipe or uh, insert your card or potentially in the future pay with a chip in your wrist, retina or whatever, you're, you're going to be revealing a lot about yourself. So as we definitely move to an era where we're not going to have paper money anymore, we need to think really hard about how can we have cash-like digital payments. And in many ways, the, the, the crux is can we have payments that aren't natively connected to our ID stack, right? So Bitcoin's use case, in, in my view, for human rights advocacy and for helping us avoid the surveillance state um, is connected to its ability to not be connected to a big you know, ID stack, which is why Chris's work is, is so important. So if all of a sudden you can make Bitcoin payments or lightning payments or you know, second layer Bitcoin payments that are pseudonymous, that are just you know, two numbers transacting and no one can see into that and figure out how to connect that to your personality, then we have a defense mechanism, we have a shield. And you can think about specific examples of this. Like a lot of people like to criticize Bitcoin and say, oh, well, like Chinese miners control Bitcoin and, and, and they can just, uh, you know, censor your transactions. And it's like, well, first of all, let's not even get into the mining piece. But a lot of people fail to see if a Chinese miner conglomerate wanted to censor my transaction to you, Peter, they'd have to know which UTXOs are mine. OK, so how would they do that? Now, if I practice good operational security and in the future, a lot of people are using stuff like CoinSwap, which I'm sure we'll get into, they can't know what transactions are mine and therefore they can't censor what I'm going to send you. So privacy is really, really important also for Bitcoin censorship resistance. And I think that's something quite important to underline because in the coming years, I think in Bitcoin, there's going to be a new civil war of over privacy. I think there's going to be arguments that some Bitcoiners are going to say, we don't want more privacy because we want number go up and we want regulated, you know, relationships with banks and with investors. And we want to go to Wall Street and Main Street, et cetera, et cetera. And you're going to see them try and push away from this narrative of like private money that's uncensorable and kind of dark. And I think that's the next big civil war here. And we need to like grow the troops on our side, on the side of like you know, human rights and freedom. And that's why we need to support people like Chris, because ultimately they're the ones that are going to make this possible. Do you actually, uh, just on that point, Alex, do you worry at all that a bigger focus on building privacy into Bitcoin gives the state more of a reason to perhaps attack Bitcoin or even want to outlaw it? 
It's inevitable. It's inexorable. I mean, but we should think of it like the battles we've had both legally and culturally over, for example, PGP or encrypted messaging, right? So at first, these things were attacked by the government, by, you know, people in the media as tools for child molesters or terrorists or whatever. Over time, we've seen cultural acceptance of encrypted messaging to the point where you have even like someone like Michael Hayden, who has a huge background in the U.S. intelligence industry, saying that it's essential for Americans to have encrypted messaging. So you have military brass using it. American, you know, chief intelligence officers saying it's important for our, for, for that's my, my country, at least for Americans to have. And you have more widespread merchant-based sort of private sector adoption of it for different reasons. But now, you know, again, you have WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, you have all these big companies with hundreds of millions of users, Zoom, getting pressured to adopt encryption. So it will kind of go in this way where if, if we can learn anything from the battle with over encryption, at first it'll be widely attacked and criticized. But over time, I think, you know, privacy and Bitcoin will just sort of force its way into success. Nice. All right. I do want to know a little bit more about uh, CoinSwap, Chris. But just before that, before we get into that, can you tell me what it's like for you as a developer working in Bitcoin in terms of getting funding? Because obviously getting the support from the HRF is great, but historically, what has it been like for you working on open source work such as this? Uh, well, to be honest, I started doing this when I was a student. Um, so I did, uh, I was doing my PhD and then I went, you know, in some of my spare time, I programmed on this stuff and then I already had a, you know, PhD stipend to fund me. And over time, it was oh, like I had a donation address, of course, and you'd get small donations coming in. And occasionally you get like a, a more substantial one that would last, you know, it would be big enough to live on for a few months or something. And that Fantastic. was very, so it's it's quite, uh, it can be quite volatile. Like you have to, uh, you have to take a bit of a risk. But I guess I always had in the back of the my, in my mind that if I do run out of money, then I'll just find a job and then I'll show them my GitHub. So that kind of kept me going. And then I always lived quite cheaply. And yeah, like uh, also when the Bitcoin price went up a bit, that helped. It's just that, like it's kind of risky, but worth it, I'd say. Yeah, it's kind of a beautiful thing how there is this kind of pay it forward mentality within Bitcoin that people want to support it, whether it's you know, little bits here or there, or whether it's you know uh, early Bitcoiners who are helping fund work like Chaincode Labs. It, it is it is a really beautiful thing we have in Bitcoin. It's very, it's very cool that obviously someone like the HRF are doing this as well. And, and Alex, at the HRF, you are opening up the fund for other people to donate and support as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the general structure is as follows. We, again, received kind of an initial kickoff gift where we're going to make several grants out of that. Chris's is the first one. And then moving forward, we've started a crowdfunding campaign, which has already been somewhat successful. We've already got... If you go to href.org slash dev fund, you can see there's um, a BTC pay server uh, option where you can donate Bitcoin. And then there's a, you can donate fiat via um, uh, a fundraise link. And if you go to the fundraise link, you can actually see the ticker. So we've already raised, I think, more than $15,000 for this fund moving forward. And I think that as we get to the end of the summer, hopefully this fund will be in a place where it can support kind of ongoing grants, maybe quarterly to different projects around the world. Um, so that's kind of how it's set up and structured. All right, cool. Well, listen, let's let's get into CoinSwap. Chris, tell me about CoinSwap. Tell me what I need to know about CoinSwap, how it works, what it's used for, and uh, try and keep this as simple as possible because I'm one of these people who just needs it 
explain in the most basic way. Okay, so CoinSwap is a privacy protocol. And now uh, the first thing to realize is the name CoinSwap makes you think that there's some kind of trading involved. And there's nothing like that. It's just a way of sending Bitcoin. And the way it, the way it works technically is that you send your Bitcoin to someone else and they send their Bitcoin to you, like the same amount. And there is some quite interesting uh, novel s- smart contract in a way that, and, and what, that, what that means is the other person can't steal your money and you can't steal their money. So if you send them, I don't know, 15 Bitcoin, you're definitely going to get back 15 Bitcoin and there's no way for them to steal from you. And the effect of that means that when someone's looking, some adversaries looking on the blockchain, they'll see your transaction going somewhere and a transaction that the coins belong to you the coins are coming back to you, but the two transactions are not linked at all. The transaction graph, as they call it technically, is not linked together. Your, your coins are just mixed with someone else's. Uh, another interesting thing about this is that these transactions can look exactly the same as any other regular transaction that's on Bitcoin that's happening every day. And that means that if someone is just making a regular transaction, if they don't care too much about privacy, then anyone who's analyzing the blockchain now has doubt because they'll always have to consider what if this person I'm tracking actually used CoinSwap? Like they probably weren't using it, but if there's a 5% chance that they were using it, then all my mass big data gathering is not going to work because 5% is too big of an error rate. So it's those two things that are really important, that it's invisible and that it's, it's unlinked. Right, I'm going to ask some basic questions here. So if I send out 15 Bitcoin and then 15 Bitcoin comes back to me, is that not kind of obvious what's happened there? Because of the amounts, you mean, that 15 and 15? Yeah. Yeah, so there, that was a big... Um, so CoinSwap was actually written about in 2013, and that was one of the problems that I had with it. You could use amounts correlation to unmix it. But there is a way I, I wrote about in my recent blog post, um, which is you have multi-transaction CoinSwap, which is I send you 15 Bitcoin, and you also send me 15 Bitcoin, but not in one transaction. So you might send me seven Bitcoin, and another transaction you send five Bitcoin, and the final one you send three Bitcoin, and that adds up to 15. And that means anyone who starts with me and says, uh, right, so, you know, I see Chris is 15 Bitcoin, I'm going to look for some other Bitcoin. They're never going to find anything. They're only going to, if they do, they'll find the seven, five, and three uh, mixed with all the other transactions. Uh, So this multi-transaction coin swap is what breaks that problem. It breaks amounts correlation. But does that mean I have to always look and find somebody who wants to swap a similar amount or is there just like a marketplace for these whereby it all just happens for me yeah yeah the 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 ideal is that it will be really simple for the user to use that they just want to if the user wants to send i don't know 0.1 whatever the whether amount they're sending then they press a button send and it just works and the way that works uh, the way that functions is there'll be this thing called a which i'm calling a liquidity market which is so there are other people, there'll be other people out there who run, who run these market makers, or what I'm calling them, as there, and they'll be happy to make a coin swap with you for any amount, and all they ask is a small fee. And they, they'll be, they know they can't lose their money because the, because the smart contract, they can't lose their money, they can only earn this fee if they have their computer running on all the time, and if they have some Bitcoins. So because the risk is very low, and uh, that means the fees we expect that people will be asking in this marketplace will be quite low. Because anyone can do it. If you have Bitcoins, you just make money from this and money will come flooding in. So then what would happen in practice is your, your wallet, your, they'll connect to this marketplace and say, okay, I want to you know, coin swap 15 Bitcoins or whatever, whatever it might be. And there'll be 10 other, 100 other, 1,000 other users. And you just choose one or a few 
and do a coin swap with them and pay them the fee and you get exactly the 15 bitcoins or whichever amount you want you were wanting comes back to you and so, so it's very no much like around so it sounds to me like an exchange but without ever actually trading in and out of another currency you're just trading one yeah. for one bitcoin the yeah whole time. that's uh, that's exactly so the idea comes from it it's a financial idea like when you go on an exchange now to trade bitcoins for dollars you don't wait around if you want you can just press buy and sell and that works because on the other side of the trade they're also they're, they're also called market makers and they're always happy to do a trade for dollar you know dollars for bitcoin and all they ask is a bid ask spread like the difference between their bid and their ask that's how they make the money and and because it's it's like it's quite a low risk thing to do to make a market so you have loads of people there's loads of liquidity on exchanges it's that same idea but instead of tra- trading bitcoins for dollars you don't do a trade you do this coin swap protocol so how is this different from a mixer uh, so it, in some ways it's similar to a mixer in those old you're talking about those old centralized mixers from 2011 it's yeah. similar in that both of them you send coins there and you get coins back and it's different in the way that the mixer can steal your money. Like that's happened all the time through history that people want to mix. They send coins and the mixer just disappears, never gives them their money back. Another way it's, it's different is generating these things. The mixer is only one, one entity. It, it's some guy on a, like on the darknet somewhere. And they, if he's spying on you, he can spy on you because he sees your coins coming in and your coins coming out. And in this coin squat plan, this design, I had a scheme where instead of using one market maker to do a coin swap, the, the user will do a route. So uh, in, the, in the blog post I wrote, there'll be Alice, and she does a coin swap to Bob, and then Bob's coins get sent to Charlie, and Charlie's coins get sent to Dennis, and Dennis's coins get sent to Alice, where Alice wants to send them. And that means instead of one person being able to spy on the route, uh, you need to get into a situation where these makers, Bob, Charlie, and Dennis, are all colluding. And only if they're colluding can they actually unmix the whole transaction. And otherwise, they don't have enough information to. But I guess like an exchange, the more liquidity it has, the more users, it becomes almost impossible to one collude and two to track. Yeah. And there's actually in the, in the blog post, there's um, a scheme to stop. There's a design thing to stop them kind of to make an economic incentive so that they don't collude, uh, which is fidelity bonds. And that's kind of technical. I can maybe get into that a bit later. But the the long story short is that it's a way to create a market incentive so that if someone wants to collude, if someone, for example, wants to run multiple bots with the intent of spying, then it will cost them more money. Like they'd make more money if they just ran one bot. That's the way to make the most money. And any, doing anything else means you leave money on the table. And therefore, there's an economic incentive to not collude. Like, like a proof of work situation yeah yeah it's very similar to that that it's the way fidelity bonds work is there are their way of sacrificing value in the same way that proof work sacrifices value uh and it's done in a way that can be proved to a third party so what what happens is these makers are asked to do a sacrifice well i mean they don't have to it's a market mechanism they they do they do a sacrifice of value and they show it to the world and then the the user will choose they'll choose makers which have the most the biggest sacrifice and uh there's um the crucial part of it is that the sacrifice goes as in math it's it's quadratic in math so if you have a sacrifice of five then the total value will be five times five which is ten um but if the person who had these five bitcoins if they actually ran five bots each one had you know one bitcoin each one plus one plus one then it will be one one squared plus one squared plus one squared which adds up to five and Five is much less than 25 from before. If they put all their Bitcoins into one bot, the value they get will be five times five, which is 25. And if they split it up, 
the value they'd get for advertising would just be one or just be five. See, and that's I guess, where the lumping together comes from. Okay. So I guess my, my mild concern when thinking about it is similar to a mixer is one of my old sponsors was a wallet called Dropbit and their CEO, Larry Harmon, back in, back in 2011, 12, the, the time you mentioned, he had a mixer called Helix. And uh, Alex, you might have a, a thought on this because he was arrested on money laundering charges for operating the mixer. So mm-hmm. do we worry here about the fact that that this might be considered money laundering by the government and there, and therefore you could face legal challenge? Yeah, um, I just want to mention that I'm not a lawyer, but I understood that the problem of, of Larry uh, of uh, something was that he was directly advertising... Yeah, he was directly advertising to Darknet users that he said, come and use my website to mix your drug money and it'll be great. And, you know, you'll, I won't grass you up to the police or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was yeah, my impression. Was. And because there are legitimate uses for privacy and money laundering has a much wider definition than just you don't want people to see what you do with your money. And the bigger point is that essentially non-custodial mixing software is, is, is not really subject to the same regulation. Coin Center, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., has written a lot about this. And whereas Larry's case was he was, he was taking custody of your funds, um, therefore he was subject to all sorts of financial legislation and rules and laws. And because in this case, in a coin swap case, the other person is never taking custody of your funds, much like in any other kind of whether it's like a coin join, et cetera, then the, the same rules don't apply. So that, that's kind of the key difference. It's very, very, very important to differentiate custodial from non-custodial mixing, which is why CoinSwap is so important. Chris, yeah, is CoinSwap something point. I can play with right now? No, right now it's just in the design phase um, that I'm working on. I'm working on creating it for testnet first and then designing it and making it. And my kind of personal plan hope is to have a release in nine to six to nine months that people can play with it and work on it. But the, even then, what, that would only be for testnet. And what will the best practices be for people using it? Is it a case of whenever you re- receive Bitcoin, you should you immediately use CoinSwap and send to a different address? So to kind yeah, of like, for, uh, for example, if you if you were just an example, if you got your Bitcoins from someone who knew lots about you, uh, I don't know, like if you uh, if you're an employer and you got paid in Bitcoin, or if you bought from a an exchange that has all your information, and yeah, you could coin swap. Then that would stop the other person seeing what you did with your money. That could be a good thing. But maybe if you just get bitcoins from another place, maybe you don't have to. Uh, but an interesting point there is because no one, because coin swaps look the same as regular transactions, no one will actually know what you did. You could just go and spend them normally, and the other person might think, oh, maybe he used the coin swap, and we don't actually know. Yeah, just to, in a clarifying question, Chris, uh, from my end that I've been wondering about. And that's obviously very important that no one knows looking at the blockchain that, that it's a coin swap. Because right now, if you do like a, a coin join with equal outputs, it's kind of obvious. So that's a, a big improvement. But can you just talk about in a basic coin swap, is it such that like party A sends to party B and then there's a party C that sends back to D, which party A also controls? Like you would just have multiple addresses in, in the same wallet or how exactly does that break the transaction what it would be so in the rooted case is that uh the user the alice who i'm calling in in that document they would Mm -hmm. they would organize the coin swap so the the actual the so for example in the earlier 
Bob and Charlie, they'd have money going from Bob to this coin swap address, which is mm-hmm. under their joint control. Alice would do all the organizing for that. So she'd pass the messages between Bob and Charlie and uh, they would never directly talk to each other over, over the wire, over the network. And a good thing about that is then Bob and Charlie don't know if they're talking to another market maker or they're talking to Alice directly. Like either those two cases are identical. So they don't know if they're the first, if they're in the middle or in they're in the last person in that route. Right. But in terms of like the Alice's case, does she get back change or nothing at all? No, nothing at all. She'd only, she'd send coins to the first one, Bob, and then she could get coins from the last one, uh, Dennis, in my example. Or and those coins go back to, right, but those coins go back to the original address or a different address that she controls? Different addresses to avoid address reuse. Perfect. Okay. That's just what I wanted to clarify. Next up, I talk to Alex and Chris more about Bitcoin privacy. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, let's talk about Sportsbet the best place for online gaming, and they accept Bitcoin. Yes, I love these guys, and the long wait's over. Football's back. Did you watch the football this week? It was a bit weird, actually. I've got to say, it's a bit weird watching football without having people in the crowd, but I was just so glad to be able to see some football again. And now we've got it every day for the next three days. I'm going to be watching football pretty much every day. And it isn't just the Premier League, Serie A, La Liga. They are all back. We have got football back. God, I've missed it so much. So I've also put my first bet on, actually. I've gone for a double. It's kind of an easy one. It's obviously going to come in. But I've bet on Liverpool to win against Everton. And I've bet on Tottenham to lose to United. It's almost a certain win. I put 500k sats on that. Fingers crossed. But if you're interested in making a bet, if you want to check it out, please do head over to sportsbet.io. You've got a chance to win big there. You can take part in their weekly leaderboard promotion with a chance to win a signed Lionel Messi or Christian Ronaldo shirt. And there's other prizes you can claim and free bets you can claim. So go and check that out. That's available at sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. Sportsbet.io is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io. And as I said, forward slash promotions. And also, welcome to my new sponsor, Casa, the best in Bitcoin security. And I've signed up. I am now a customer. I do have one more session with the team because I'm going to swap out one of the wallets. I had a cold card Mark II, but I'm going to swap that out for a cold card Mark III. And once that's done, which will be the next couple of days, I am going to be fully set up with my Casa multi-sig wallet, my own personal Bitcoin fork knocks. And yeah, it's really easy thing to do. It's given me a lot of peace of mind. Security is one of these things I've been worried about for a while. I kept thinking, Pete, get your shit together. Get your Bitcoin security sorted. And yeah, I'm glad I did it with Casa. I signed up for their Platinum edition. Nick Newman, the CEO, did offer it to me for free, but I decided I wanted to pay. I wanted to feel what it was like. I wanted to like actually pay for the product. So so next year, when it comes to renewal, I'll actually know whether it's worth paying for or not. I didn't want to have that weird thing where I thought, well, I got it for free, so this year's half price. I actually wanted to do, fully understand the product whilst paying for it. Now, I did sign up for Castle Platinum, which is $150 a month. Now, if that's a bit too much to begin with and you want to just try it out, you can try out their gold option. That is $10 a month, which will give you a more robust security protection for your Bitcoin than with a single wallet. Actually gives you about triple the security for protecting your Bitcoin. So it really is a no-brainer to try out. And Casa is offering a free one-month trial at trials.keys.casa, which is T-R-I-A-L.K-E-Y-S.C-A-S-A. And if you're interested in trying out the platinum or diamond, then just head over to keys.casa. So there's a few things I've, I'm aware of with Bitcoin privacy, CoinSwap obviously that you're working on now. I've also heard of CoinJoin and PayJoin. They're not anything I've 
actively used yet. I uh, I had a look at CoinJoin and it was just uh, a little bit too confusing for me using it within um, that's within Samurai, right? Um, so one of the things that are good probably for me and people listening, especially people who haven't really dabbled in uh, their, their own Bitcoin privacy. Can you explain the differences between these and what the pros and cons are of the, the different technologies available? Okay, so I'll start with CoinJoin. Uh, so CoinJoin is, is much simpler than CoinSwap. And the way it works is that many people, many different users come together and they create one Bitcoin transaction for all of them. And so a very a, a very common kind of CoinJoin is called Equal Output CoinJoin. And that's where all these users, say there's 10 users, all of them will put money into a transaction and they'll get exactly the same amount of Bitcoins out. I don't know, let's call it two Bitcoins. They all get two Bitcoins. And uh, then for someone looking on the blockchain, it's impossible f- to find a linkage between the inputs and the outputs. Uh, and so that the, the upside there is that was quite, that was quite simple to actually create. So these protocols have been known since 2013 and they... They're, they're quite easy to actually program to do, and you don't need much programming states or anything like that. And they're, they're good as a first step for privacy. So CoinJoin has a few downsides, and one is that they're very obvious what's happening because these transactions, they're much bigger, and they have these characteristic equal outputs. So in the example I just said, there'll be 10 outputs, and they're all worth two Bitcoins each. That kind of pattern doesn't really happen ever on the blockchain, maybe by accident, but it, it happens all the time with CoinJoin. So there's another type of transaction uh, called pay join, and that is a different kind of coin join, but it doesn't have an equal output. And the way that works is that works when, whenever there's like a sender and receiver relationship, for example, a customer and a merchant. So if I don't know, I'm the user and I want to buy something from a customer, I don't know, I want to buy a hat, for example, what I can do is the me and the merchant. So the customer and the merchant can together create a coin join, which is we can create one transaction which has both of our inputs and both of our outputs. And what the effect there is that it screws up an assumption behind uh, behind blockchain analysis, which is that all the inputs are owned by, all the inputs to a transaction are owned by the same person. So it purposely breaks that assumption. Another effect it has, it hides the payment amount. Like if the hat that I'm buying costs five pounds, five dollars, then it all, it won't be obvious that that amount five dollars won't be visible on the blockchain. Uh, see, so yeah. that has an advantage over the equal output coin joins in that it's not visible. That pay joins also look like a regular kind of transaction. Right. Okay. So that's that's been that's how some service providers have been able to identify coin join uh, coins and have essentially been rejecting them. Yeah, yeah. There was a few a few cases, I think Binance or something rejected coin join or at least something so, so there's a slight debate of whether that case was because they were coin joins or just because they were related to an address which is used in the Wasabi coin join implementation. And I mean, we can't really tell because Binance won't really tell us. But, but the, the principle that they are detectable is still there. Even if Binance weren't detecting them today, there's nothing to stop them or anyone else detecting them in the future. But to be clear, like if you're like a Coinbase and you know one of your users is consistently either um, you know, coming into Coinbase, the Coinbase account wallet with uh, coins from an equal output output transaction or consistently withdrawing to coins that end up in an equal output transaction, Coinbase may in the future decide just to ban that user because of like they're worried about the US government 
regulation, et cetera, et cetera. They, they aren't, to our knowledge, doing it now, but they could, which is why it's really important to develop coin join technology that does not have equal outputs. And if Coinbase was doing that, Alex, they are still making a certain assumption based on blockchain activity. They don't actually have proof. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people who spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt about Bitcoin kind of miss is that like, at least in a democratic society where you'd have to take these cases to a court with a judge, all this stuff is assumptions. So at the end of the day, the judge is going to have to basically figure out with all the evidence that's been presented, can I prove that these coins were Peter's or can I prove that he coin joined? And the best you can do is prove to, you know, with a reasonable degree of doubt. So what we're trying to do is create as much doubt as possible and eventually create the even ability to link these coins to a particular person. So the evolution of Bitcoin privacy has gone from creating doubt to hopefully, you know, in the future, making it basically impossible to link coins to a person. That is the key. That's where we want to get to. See, Chris, some people say I'm a a lazy Bitcoiner and and perhaps I am, perhaps I am, perhaps I've got a lazy attitude, but I'm also always trying to think of ease of use for other people. And I just want to get to a point whenever I send new Bitcoin to a wallet that I hold, I just want to press a button, just one button that says coin join or coin swap or whatever it is. And it just, it's all just done for me. Do you think we will get to that point? Yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a big hope, but that's what I'm, that's what I designed the system around that it won't, that it won't even be called coin join or coin swap or any other technical name. It will just be called send or maybe like send privately or something. Uh, yeah, because you, I agree with you that if something's really hard to use, people just won't do it. Or if they, if someone needs to do it, they'll feel they won't be able to do it, and then they'll self-censor. And and do you think there's a possibility, therefore, that that one step further, that my coins could go through a coin swap on the way into the wallet or on the way out every time? So I don't even, I'm not even thinking about it at that point. Or do you think privacy is a thing you would want to be able to choose? Uh, well, a problem with it happening automatically is because this costs fees, like it costs coin swap fees and minor fees, then okay. the wallet has to explain to the user, like, why did my balance just go down? Um, so just from a user experience point of view, that's probably not a good idea. I Kind of my vision, uh, I suppose, might change is that a user could, chain, could choose, do they want to send a, a transaction that's a bit cheaper but is less private or one that's a bit more expensive and is more private? And then when they're choosing what to send, they choose one based on their you know their needs at that at that time yeah that that makes sense and I, I guess well i guess if this is hugely successful could this lead to congestion in the blockchain and um, is that something you've had to think about oh yeah and actually today um so coin coin join transactions which are like they're implemented today people use them they i've seen certain tweets um i don't know how true they are but that something like five percent or two percent of some blocks are just taken up just by coin joins um, wow. So obviously the demand for privacy is there. Like I think everyone, everyone I talked about privacy, they all, they're all keen, they're eager. Like the demand is definitely there, and uh, I think CoinSwap helps with that because they're it's more efficient with the blockchain. So with the way these equal output coin joins work, they're much bigger. They use more block space, and they also you people typically do more than one of them. So for example, in um, join markets implementation of coin join which i worked on by default it does about 10 or 15 coin joins and each individual coin join is much bigger and that can be that can be replaced uh, by just one set of coin swap transactions just you do it once uh, and that'll be enough and 
these 15 coin, coin joins and still not as good privacy as one set of coin swaps would be. And they're bigger on the blockchain. So efficiency is improved. In fact, one place where the privacy actually comes from, the reason the privacy is better is because it's taking away information from the blockchain. So the two goals of reducing congestion and increasing privacy go together there. And just to um, build on that and to give your listeners, Peter, an understanding of where we are right now, what the state of usability is right now, I can just very quickly walk through kind of what I've done, which I think is very simple doesn't require any technical expertise. If you have an Android phone, uh, unfortunately it doesn't work for iPhone at the moment, you can just download an app called Samurai. It's, it's a wallet, it's a Bitcoin wallet. It's, it will appear to you no different really than perhaps like a Blockstream green, green wallet or a Dropbit, et cetera. The interesting thing is when you, let's say you withdraw to this wallet from wherever you bought your Bitcoin from, if you're a normal person and you bought it from something like Coinbase, you would withdraw or Square, you would withdraw the Bitcoin to this wallet. And then from there, you, you basically press a button and, and enter a coin join. And, and it, it enters into one of these equal output coin joins that we've been discussing. And then what happens at the end is you get a, you choose the pool you want to go into, whether it's like a 10th of a Bitcoin or, you know, a 0.05 Bitcoin pool, etc. So these are like increments of today, about $500 or $1,000, you can kind of choose. And then you put some Bitcoin in, and then you wait a little while. And then it's a matter of hours or, or day or so. And then when that's done mixing, you now have like a squeaky clean 0.05 or 0.1 amount of Bitcoin. And then you can send that to cold storage or to any other wallet you want. So this today is, is fairly usable. I would say it's pretty easy. Um, it, it's more steps than I'd like. Like in the future, I think, especially if Chris and others are successful, there'll be sort of a one-click function where you withdraw your money from an exchange and it does a coin swap, which is, as we've heard, even better than an equal output coin join. And then kind of you pay a small fee and then all of a sudden you've got your, your, your you know, Bitcoin that's not traceable. So I think that's where we're headed. But just to give your, user, your listeners an idea, you can already do this with a pretty easy to use phone app. It's pretty exciting. That's pretty cool. I'm not an Android, so I can't see that. But uh, perhaps you can show me next time I see you, Alex. It can also be done um, on a sure. desktop. Not yeah, with this wallet, but there are other wallets can do it yeah like wasabi which has a different model than samurai and and i encourage people to experiment with both they're often warring with each other as as it (laughs) as it stands which is i think healthy we all want competition but wasabi uses a slightly different model but they have a really good i would i would i would say really good desktop wallet um which is very interesting and it works kind of the same way but i just think that the bringing samurai to the to the mobile phone was a big deal and in the next couple years you're gonna see especially if Chris is determined, you know, you're going to see mobile wallets that have CoinSwap built in. And again, you may have to pay a fee, a premium for privacy, and we can discuss that, but it's all about having that option. And if enough users, if 5% of users are doing some sort of coin join or, or coin swap, and again, like what Chris said, it, it, it just creates doubt in the mind of anyone trying to do surveillance and it prevents them from making those assumptions that allow them to link transactions together and de-anonymize people. And that's what we're trying to do, prevent authorities from de-anonymizing users. If they want to de-anonymize me, they should go have to get a like a warrant from an authority and, and go through a legal mechanism and, and investigate me like they would today. What we want to prevent is from them just being able to mass snoop on people without getting a warrant in an unconstitutional way, at least in the American context. That's what we want to prevent. That's what they're able to do now through relationships with exchanges, et cetera. They're able to sort of like 
mass de-anonymize people if they want to. We want to remove that technical ability from them so that they have to like go through these like traditional approved reasonable uh, uh, mechanisms to 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 de-anonymize people. That's the key. We're just trying to preserve a state of legality that's that's reasonable and prevents mass surveillance. Yeah, what what is it with wallets? They're always fighting each other. It doesn't matter if it's a hardware wallet or a software wallet. They're always fucking fighting each other. <laughs> oh, it's because they f- they're in competition. They make um, they get fees when people do when people use them when people use coin joins or buy their wallets. So it's kind of natural, I suppose, for them to argue a bit on Twitter. Yeah, but it's, it seems like they're at it more than any other sector within Bitcoin. Mm. Chris, along those lines, do you view CoinSwap as something that you think will be pioneered or championed by like one particular wallet at first? Or do you think it's something that really will be something that can be like kind of adopted by existing wallets in a way that's you got? Three, yeah, four, five ideally, I'd like to get everyone. Ideally, I'd like to get everyone to 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 use it so that the kind of design I have in my project is that it will be a software library at the end that existing wallets could build in. And then they won't. Then you won't need to make a whole new wallet or anything like that. You'll just use your old wallets, which will have this new button. Ideally, amazing. So, so Chris, what are the next steps? Uh, are you working on this on your own? Have you got anyone helping you? You said perhaps six to nine months to get some kind of like beta out to some test out. Tell me, tell me what's going on for you now. Uh, so right now, I'm I'm uh, going through. I'm designing how the thing should actually work on a on a technical level. And from there, I'll start uh, creating it in in uh, in Rust language and, and make a release. That's what I'm doing right now. That they the thing actually the the blog post that I wrote that um that got a lot of attention was kind of also the design document. Just like these are some of the general principles of how we should do this. So there'll be multi transactions, there'll be routing, and then the actual details I need to still figure out. Like I'm most of the way there, but they you really need to nail it down because the thing is, if you get it wrong, then you can people can lose money. So you have to be quite careful. All right, damn. Well, listen, good luck with all of that. It sounds amazing. And Alex, nice one on the HRF for supporting to this. Um, I do have some other things I want to talk about. I want to have got you both here. A few things. Firstly, Chris, tell me about SciHub. Oh, yeah. SciHub's really interesting. So that's that, that's another thing that uh, thing that, that Bitcoin, is, Bitcoin donations are used for. So what that is, is there is the way academic publishing works. So the way scientific papers and academic papers come out is they're published with journals. And you can go to you can, you can read the journal if you're if you're in a library. So if you're in related to a university or an inst- in a big institution, they pay a subscription to journals, and that ends up. Firstly, the the journals are a bit of a monopoly. It ends up costing loads of money to these universities. And secondly, it means that not everyone can use like not everyone can use them. You can only use them if you're associated with an institution. And SciHub, you could kind of I think a way of summarizing that is you could say it's the pirate bay of academic publishing. So if you go to the SciHub website, you can find any paper that, I mean, almost any paper that's been published out there. Uh, and that's run by this uh, great woman from, I think, Russia or Kazakhstan. Uh, and it's a website you can just go to. And the reason it's related to Bitcoin is uh, she accepts donations in Bitcoin. That's the only way she can be funded because all PayPal and Visa and all these other people have just censored her because what she's doing is against, like, it, it, it's like torrenting. It's a, it breaks copyright law and they, they want to shut that down. But even though, even though like it, it breaks the law for these things, I still think it's a massive public good. I know from my point of view that my work would be basically impossible. Well, not well, much, much harder, at least, if I'd had to, because I'm not, no longer associated with the university. I can't just go online and find a paper for some maths equation that I was trying to solve. 
from like from, from this. It's really funny that the other day I need to find a paper that was from written in the 60s in 1963, and it solved um, a polylog normal function. I need to solve, and I just couldn't couldn't find it anywhere that I had. It was it was on um, I think the American Mathematical Journal, and it, it was charging fifty dollars to read the paper or something silly that is just out of my reach as an independent researcher. So I just went on Sci-Hub, and it was there. So what's the general ethical view on this? Uh, I think it, it's funny that the only people who benefit are these publisher monopolies. So right. from what I mean, all the academics I know, no one is, no one's a big fan of the thing is they, they want their work to be as visible as possible to everyone. And then universities want their work to be as visible as possible to everyone. And they don't want, they also don't want to pay the massive monopoly fees. And then people who fund the universities, so either their taxpayers or their, their benefactors, they also don't want to be paying loads of fees. They, they don't want their money to go, go to this monopoly. So I think there's basically a consensus among everyone that this kind of thing is is ethical and is good. I guess we've got two links to Gregory Maxwell here then, right? Because uh, it didn't, am I right in thinking he originally came up, came up with CoinSwap? And he was also, yeah. wasn't he involved with uh, Aaron Schwartz in the dumping of, was it like 20,000 JSTOR documents on the on the pirate bay or something yeah i think so um i haven't i haven't read of that in a few in a few years but from what i remember that aaron schwartz uploaded loads of these papers it was exactly the same kind of thing papers you couldn't get anywhere else but only yeah. going through this publishing monopoly and he put them on the pirate bay and no no it wasn't him it was greg maxwell put them on the pirate bay and aaron schwartz was oh, i forget the details but somehow they're mm. both involved uh and that was it the yeah, I, I seem to remember that, sadly, about Aaron Schwartz. Um, yeah, and that's exactly right. the same issue there of academic publishing. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. It made it also just it made me think a little bit about of uh, WikiLeaks, what happened with WikiLeaks. Yeah, yeah, like trustless donations and censorship-resistant donations are a really big feature of Bitcoin. So it's, it's natural that these kind of places will use them. All right, let's do a little bit more on privacy. Um I recently did an interview with Jonathan Levin from Chainalysis. Obviously, that's not a company Alex is a, a particular fan of. M- myself too. I, and I don't usually give people a hard time, but I, I did give Jonathan quite a, a hard time on the show. But I know I don't know if you listened to that show, but I know you certainly added some commentary about it, uh, Chris. And you you were particularly irked by Chainalysis when when Jonathan was out doing the interviews. Can you like summarize your thoughts about it? Well, I suppose my main my main thing there is it's not necessarily about Chainalysis, the company, but more about blockchain surveillance as a technology. Uh, so I know when when Jonathan went on your show, he would he could say things like, "Oh, like well, we're not, you know, we don't have any personal information. We're not doing this stuff." But and the the thing I kind of kept thinking was, okay, it's not you, but I'm sure there's a Chinese version of of Chainalysis, and they do actually spy on people and get all their personal information, or there's you know, a Venezuelan or Iranian version of blockchain analysis. So the, the technology is out there and you can't just rely on one company saying, okay, we're going to be ethical because loads of other people won't be. And then there's a few, there's also all the issues of if their technology gets too well adopted, then it will destroy the fungibility of Bitcoin, that Bitcoin will just stop working as a, as a money. It won't be usable anymore if everyone has to consult a centralized database. Can, can you make them obsolete? I hope so. That, that's one of my aims. What do you think, Alex? That's that's why we wanted to support Chris and we'll be supporting other projects in the area of Bitcoin privacy. If we don't, it's sort of a cat and mouse game, but if we don't 
advance and evolve on the privacy side, then the surveillance side will gain the upper hand. And that's not something we want to see. If we want to see the ability of free information and activists being able to receive donations, you know, without being crushed, et cetera, et cetera, in the future, which is a, it's essential for the lifeblood of our societies, you know, as we know them as open and free societies, then we're going to need financial privacy uh, in the future. So I would just say it's like, uh, you know, an overriding uh, priority here. All right, good. Well, fuck you, chain analysis. And also something about the chain analysis folks is that they, <laughs> they, they claim that, um, cause I debated, uh, recently one of the elliptic guys who created that other company and they, they kind of have this view where like they're responsible for Bitcoin success. That's kind of their marketing pitch. And they're like, Hey, you know, if, it's we, such didn't, bullshit. if we didn't exist, then Bitcoin wouldn't be as popular. And it's just, it's really, uh, <laughs> it's just a facile argument. It doesn't, doesn't really make much sense. And it's unfortunate to see them saying that. So I, I really hope they get obsoleted or as I, as I, as I invited them to, to join our side, you know, they should take their skills and, and, and knowledge about the Bitcoin blockchain and help strengthen it against spying. That would be a great turn of events and it would help them sleep better at night. Is what I, uh, yeah. Well, I, I was moderating that one, Alex, and I think you were particularly savage. I think it's, it's something along the lines. I think you, you, you did something like you need to reconsider your life choices or come and work for the good side. Blah, blah, he, blah, blah. It was he said a he, pretty harsh he, takedown. He, he, he was very nice about it and he said he had a lot to think about, which is good. I want them to be thinking a lot about what they're doing. Um, yeah, and, and them to just know that this is not some moral high horse they can be on. No, there's no high horse for them. This is, this is their squarely mercenaries and they should be referred yes. to as surveillance companies. And that's, they want to be proud about being a surveillance company. Great, they can go do that. But they should not be go, you know, they should not be allowed to go around and and be, you know, be treated as positive people in the Bitcoin space. They are enemies of Bitcoin, right? So yeah. that's that's fair that's enough. Full story. If uh, if anyone's listening is working for a blockchain analysis company, go fuck yourself. You're not a Bitcoiner. Reconsider your life choices. I think that's a fair summary. <laughs> right. One one last thing I want to talk to you about, Alex. You sent me um you sent me an article about the Zebellion rebellion. Yeah. It's actually fascinating. I couldn't work out if that was almost like some kind of like psyop piece to discredit Bitcoin. Well, it was very exaggerated. It was, you know, yeah. a writer who's paid for the clicks and he took a look at a totally, it's not a classified paper. It was like a training manual developed by an arm of the US government. And there's like two paragraphs in this huge paper about a scenario where in the future, dissidents or anti-government activists create a, a pseudonymous crowdfunding campaign. So you could think of it today like if Black Lives Matter or something like that decided that they wanted to start a campaign to fund their work that was not traceable, okay? They were worried that the government was going to stop them, which I think is a is not out of the question. If you actually see what's happening right now, like in different cities, in Hong Kong, this has already happened. Like if you donate to uh, Spark Alliance or one of the groups that's supporting the Hong Kong protest movement and your employer finds out, you can get fired, okay? This has happened in Venezuela. If you supported the student movement or something like that in Venezuela and the government found out, you'd get fired, okay? This is especially problematic for societies that have a high public sector uh, job percentages where 40, 50% of the people work for the government. This is really, really problematic. But in the case of the United States or the UK, what we don't want is for citizens to be afraid to support anti-government peaceful protesters or dissidents or critics of the government or 
people investigating government corruption, we don't want them to be afraid of donating to those causes or supporting them financially. And they will be afraid if they can be de-anonymized. So this is kind of the key thing is that the U.S. government drew up this sort of little futuristic story about a scenario where, you know, a, a resistance movement, you know, broke out across the U.S. that was funded in a way that was not stoppable. And um, yeah, that's kind of like the dream. Yeah, that's that's the dream. That's the idea of what we could achieve here is that, you know, incumbent governments can no longer control the financial flows to the opposition. We want this to be equal footing. Okay. And that's what Bitcoin does is it really provides equal footing. Everybody can get donations. It means no one can just be in a position of power such that they can restrict donations of one side. And it's not saying that like one side's morally better than the other. It's just creating a new architecture of money where no side can say, oh, we're going to turn off the funding flow to the other side. Not happening anymore as long as Bitcoin can remain, remain private and fungible, which again is why Chris's work is so important. But yeah, I really want to hear what Chris has to say, say about Zabellion yeah. as well. Yeah, no, I, I mirror all those points. And just one thing to add is it's not actually a very new thing. So in in the past, when cash was much more popular, then you had um, a fungible and private way of donating. That if you if you want to donate to some charity or some political cause, you just give them banknotes. Like that just worked. Um, so this thing of uh, donating to a cause you believe in privately is not really very new. Like cash has existed for centuries. Um, so yeah, at that point there. Yeah, I just have one more subject I, I want I wanted to take the opportunity to hit while we're while we're on on all on here. Let's, let's but, do it. Okay, so uh, and this is just something I'd love to hear Chris's reflections on. Number one, how, how does CoinSwap have a relationship with Lightning? And does it does it help Lightning? Does it help opening Lightning channels? Does it help make that more quiet, more more unobservable? And and what are your thoughts sort of on Lightning? And then number two, why aren't you working on a privacy coin? Why not just make a coin that's like a Monero or a Zcash or Grin or whatever? What, why why have you chosen to stick with Bitcoin and not and not say as those folks have that Bitcoin's useless and uh, you know it's 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 never going to be private enough and therefore we're going to create something else i'd love to hear your thoughts on those two topics i'll echo the second one i actually had it in my list of questions what why can't we just use monero exactly yeah okay so the first one is how it relates to lightning so coin swap is fundamentally an on-chain technology that when you send a coin swap transaction you send to a bitcoin address and you don't send to a lightning invoice so I think they they help each other because uh, so Lightning has privacy things that has privacy improvements I'll get to, but they are quite degraded if the on-chain, if the blockchain layer has degraded privacy, because then it will always be possible to, for example, see who owns a certain channel channel transaction. And then from there, even if even if it's harder to get the, tran- the Lightning transactions, the, the spy can still see who owns the channel. Yeah, uh, another thing of Lightning is you can... If someone wants to stop the privacy benefits of Lightning, they can just not accept it. They'll say, I'm only going to accept Bitcoin, like on-chain Bitcoin. For example, like an exchange like Coinbase or something and say, we're only going to take Bitcoin on-chain because we think we can spy on you and, and that'll be that. And that won't be possible when CoinSwap exists because then anyone, like you'll just get paid to a, an address and it will be, it will look like a regular transaction. You can't tell what's happening uh, in a way that, that isn't true of Lightning because to accept Lightning, the receiver also needs to adopt Lightning. Now, for the privacy benefits of Lightning, I, I generally think they're very good. So 
if with that privacy wiki that I wrote, there's a whole, a huge part of it is taken up by things like address reuse and the common input ownership heuristic where multiple inputs are owned by the same person or how to track change addresses or a thing called the mystery shopper attack. And all those things just disappear when you use Lightning. So there's no change, there's no change address tracking because there are no change addresses in Lightning. There's no address reuse because Lightning doesn't use addresses in the way the Bitcoin does. So all those problems just disappear. However, Lightning has its own privacy issues um, and they're related to how so nodes have to connect to each other like directly over 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 the wire and uh, send tran like send transactions that way. And that that's still undergoing in research in research. So what are the privacy trade-offs there? But there definitely are some there definitely are some ways to attack lightning privacy. So it's not a cure-all, but I think it's a lot better than using the blockchain. Now for privacy coins like Monero. Well, my view of why didn't I start to, why didn't I start an altcoin and pump it and get rich was I kind of wanted to make the most difference. I wanted to, in my view, because Bitcoin was, because uh, it has the biggest network effect. So any user who comes to, if they want to make a, if you know, if they want to make a censorship-resistant transaction, they're going to go to the the currency which has the the most liquidity and the most users and the most places to spend it. So, for example, just as a concrete example. People in people in these privacy altcoins, they often say, okay, well, Bitcoin has this taint problem. There's, you know, if your coins get tainted, then you're screwed. And I think that the reason they're really concerned about that is because their coins are only accepted in maybe five exchanges in the world and nowhere else. So if one of those five exchanges blocks them, then that's a problem because you've, they've just lost a huge amount of their customers. But with Bitcoin, because because Bitcoin is accepted in so many places that if one exchange or something blocks you, you can just you know, you can go to the street and sell it for cash. You can go to an ATM. You can go to loads of places. But it's so much more decentralized economically that things like tainting and censoring are much harder to do anyway. So that's already a big, like a big advantage that Bitcoin has because of the. So, so just to reiterate, the net network effect is this thing where systems like uh, like social networks or technologies that are based on networks are more valuable the bigger they grow. So. For example, like a phone, uh, the phone system, people phoning one another is more valuable the more users it already has. And that gives an advantage to the first mover, the, to the system, which is already the biggest. So in this case, Bitcoin is already the biggest and it has a disproportionate advantage to other altcoins. So another reason I think privacy coins are not very useful is technology eventually changes. So in the Monero example, the way that works is there's decoy inputs to you have a, a, a transaction that has inputs which are not just yours, they belong to other people. And the, the way the cryptography works is that nobody else can tell which do you, who, who, who these inputs really belong to, if they're yours or if they're someone else's. So that has a big, firstly, that was made before Lightning. So that was made before people really understood about minor fees and efficiency of blockchains and that kind of thing. And now we have Lightning, which also has a really big privacy advantage. And Monero is kind of left behind. Like they don't, they can't have lightning. They need to do all kinds of updates to get lightning. And they're just stuck with this technology from 2014, basically, when it was made. And now we have new things. We have CoinSwap, we have lightning. And uh, I think they're much more productive to try and build them on Bitcoin where they'll be really useful rather than just making a new altcoin for every new technology that someone invents. I think that's a fair answer. Just to build on that, uh, I think the idea here is that in the cryptocurrency space, no one's going to be delisting Bitcoin. Bitcoin is like the, you know, the, the sine qua non. It, you're not going to have an exchange and not list Bitcoin. That's just not going to happen. It is the thing that defines the entire space. It's the 
largest coin by far. It's the most popular coin by far. And that will be the case. So you're, you're not going to have a situation where a company is going to be like, oh, um, Bitcoin's getting risky. Let's delist it. Um, that's just not happening. So that's why it's so valuable for people to make Bitcoin the most private coin. If we can continue to bring privacy to Bitcoin in a way that's relatively unassailable by attackers, then then we sort of won in that in that case. Whereas if you start a if you start an altcoin and you may have good intentions, I have no doubt that a lot of the people promoting these other coins have good intentions. In fact, many of them do. The problem is that they can just get delisted. And then that really just limits their ability to change the world. So with yeah. Bitcoin, it's kind of like the Trojan horse idea. Like let's let's get everybody to accept Bitcoin because they believe in it as a speculative investment and they can make money on it and everybody's going to be <laughs> very excited about that. However, inside the Trojan horse is, is this cypherpunk technology that has, is, is changeable, is evolvable, is growing, is getting more powerful and, it, it, and, it, and it, it's becoming a stronger privacy technology. So you're kind of, um, you know, you have all these people like Paul Tudor Jones or whatever saying they want to have an exposure to Bitcoin and they're, they're not even owning Bitcoin. They're going to own essentially an ETF of Bitcoin or something like that. But at the end of the day, they're talking about Bitcoin as, a, as an investment, which is great. All these people can talk about Bitcoin as an investment what they don't realize is they're strengthening this like sort of crazy radical cypherpunk tool that's going to allow individuals to have sovereignty and privacy over their payments and their savings in the future. And that's really cool. That's a very interesting game theoretical effect that hasn't really been discussed or studied much yet. But it's like the institutions that are coming into Bitcoin, they're not going to be coming into Zcash or Monero or Grin or whatever. They're coming into Bitcoin because they view it as this like digital gold thing that they think they can make mm. a lot of money from. And the side effect of that, 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 that they're not talking about, maybe they, maybe they realize it. Some of these people definitely don't realize it, is that they're strengthening this like really incredible cypherpunk tool. So the more we can like pour into investment and privacy, resilience, decentralization into Bitcoin, the more kind of inevitable it becomes as a tool for the masses. That's at least, at least what I believe. So I, I have no doubt that folks that are working on the privacy coins some of them have their heart in the right place. Others are just, uh, as Chris said, trying to get rich. But some of them have their heart in the right place. But ultimately, I think they're going to realize that, like, you know, maybe the best thing that they've done is experiment with a particular kind of privacy tech that can be brought to Bitcoin later. Didn't one um, of, wasn't one of them celebrating the, the other day that was it Zcash or Dash people were celebrating that chain analysis is now able to track them? I can try to remember which one. It was ridiculous. Celebrating it, yeah, um, they were celebrating it. It's like it's like a. It was almost like well, it's, it's like they've made it. That's I the other thing. Which one? Well, that's the other thing. With I mean, there's a lot of things in this conversation. It could be its own podcast, but you know, altcoins are inevitably centralized. So there's like a small group of mm. people who make the decisions, and that's what I'm excited about about Bitcoin. There isn't a small group of people who make the decisions, right? It's like by social consensus. Very, very different from any other coin project where you have a small group of people who make the decisions. To me, it's like the difference between corporate money and the people's money. Like all these other projects are corporate money. A small co company essentially runs things and they can make a decision, for example, like you mentioned just Peter to like have a partnership with a surveillance company or whatever. Like no one in Bitcoin can make the decision to have a partnership with a surveillance company. That's not what Chris Belcher signed up for. You know what I mean? No, of course. Actually, Chris, yeah. I've got a question for you on Monero. Um, so like my own personal journey was like I was a full Bitcoiner and shitcoiner at the same time when when I discovered Bitcoin. And, and I understand why that people do that. I think this 
expectation that people will suddenly discover uh, cryptocurrencies are instantly uh, a Bitcoin. I, I don't think that's completely practical. Um, but over time, I came to the understanding of why Bitcoin matters and, and everything else is pretty much bollocks. But uh, there's always been something about Monero. I've kind of thought, well, I, I don't hate it. Like, uh, And I understand why some people like support it and like it. And, you know, the way it was born and the purposes for its existence seem pretty cool and et cetera, et cetera. And I always thought, well, look, if there was a scenario now where I needed to do an anonymous transaction, if I needed to go on the dark web and, and buy something, perhaps a, you know, a treatment or, you know, whatever, I would possibly use Monero because I wouldn't, I would feel like I've got greater privacy. But is there anything that you can do with Monero that you can't actually do now with Bitcoin if you know what you're doing? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, I think you could do everything. If you know what you're doing, you can be very private in Bitcoin. Uh, but the problem there is the user, how easy it is for users. So to be completely private in Bitcoin, you might, you'd probably have to uh, read a little bit and a do things like avoid address reuse and use CoinJoin and stuff. And in Monero, that's a lot more automatic. But really, when I think about this stuff, I don't think of, I think of kind of the next 10 years, the next 20 years. So kind of Monero has an issue that its its scalability is much worse. So that, that translates to security. Monero's security is much worse, that they, the full nodes that, like full nodes are needed to defend the system from having its rule changed, they, they'll get harder and harder, they'll cost more resources to run as time goes on like in a it'll get it gets harder faster than bitcoin gets harder if you see what i mean like the the resources are not on the side of monero um yeah, so yeah no, i get that you could probably i, I wouldn't hodl and hold on to monero long term but the point being is like if, if i had to do a transaction tomorrow could i just like buy 20 30 monero if i needed it do the transaction and just like use it more as a uh, medium exchange rather than a store of well so i'm not worried about the long term but what, what i'm getting at is that there are people in the Monero world who, are, who will, will claim that, well, I mean, even my feed got attacked the other day by Monero people talking about something to do with privacy. It got kind of spammed where they were saying, well, this is why you need Monero. But that's, that was really the question is like, if I need to do an anonymous transaction, are there the tools out there now that I can do that? I can, you know, coin join or swap my coins and, and use Tor. And are the, are the tools out there? That, that you can do that. And I guess you're saying they are, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. With the with what we know with today's technology, um, yeah, I think if you, yeah, you could. Great. All right. So the, there, uh, there's the another thing to point out with Monero is because it has fewer users, you have less people to hide in the crowd. Right. I see. I understand. All right. Cool. Well, look, this has been great. Brilliant as expected. I knew. Alex would bring the fire as he always does. But I really appreciate getting you on, Chris. I uh, really appreciate what you're doing. It's very interesting. Uh, stay in touch. I'd like to know more about it when you get uh, closer to launch. Have a play with it as well. There's a few things I obviously need to do my side to up my skills and the uh, and knowledge in the privacy area. Uh, before we close out, um, Alex, can you just tell people how they can find out more about this fund, how they can support and donate and, and follow yourself? And then when Alex is done, Chris, just tell people how they can also support your work and follow what you're doing. Yeah, again, uh, the Human Rights Foundation has created a Bitcoin development fund to support privacy resilience in the Bitcoin network. If you live in America, uh, given that HREF is a 501c3, a charity, you can actually make a tax-deductible donation to this fund, which I think is pretty significant. I'm not aware of any other way to do that. If you are an American, you want to get a tax write-off on a donation to support Bitcoin development. I think this is the only way to do it. Hopefully, there'll be more. It would be amazing if there were 20, 30 options. But at the moment, it looks like we're kind of on the... On the cutting edge here. 
you can go to ahreforg slash devfund to learn about it. We'll be making more gifts later this summer and we'll be raising funds on an ongoing basis to support people like Chris. And we're going to hopefully look at folks, uh, you know, have a very global scope for this. So we're going to be trying to support developers in, 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 in many different countries. And hopefully this is a supplement to what's happening right now with, with companies. So there are lots of great companies out there and there are also exchanges that are starting to support Bitcoin development, ranging from BitMEX to OKCoin to uh, Square Crypto, of course, to Blockstream. I mean, there's 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 starting to become kind of like a uh, a core group that is doing this more and more often, and I think that's really wonderful. And hopefully, we can help sort of diversify that, and again, get more universities, research centers, nonprofits, philanthropists to 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 get involved. Uh, yeah. So um, for me, you can follow my work. I have a website, BitcoinPrivacy.me where I have links to GitHubs and other profiles that I, that I work on. And that, that's kind of the central place you can find me. And there's also a donation link page if you want to support me directly. Amazing. Well, great stuff, guys. Thank you both for coming on. You both have a free and open access to come on this whenever you want. If you ever got things you need to tell me, just uh, just give me a shout. I love what you're both doing. So always welcome. And uh, it's great to see you both. And uh, Chris, we're in the same country. We should probably have a beer sometime. And Alex, hopefully, when the planes are flying, I'll see you again pretty soon. Yeah, it's yeah. quite the pleasure to be on here with you guys. I think that Chris is working on something that in 20 years from now will be a very important piece of the privacy infrastructure of the world. And we should keep an eye on out on what he does. And uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, well, thanks for your support. Okay, what did you think of that episode? Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy having Chris on? good to get Alex back on the show. It's been a while since he's been on the show. He came on my other show, Defiance, but he hasn't actually been on my show for quite some time. So it's good to have him back. Also, what about Bitcoin privacy? Is it something you care about? Are you actively using things like CoinJoin? I want to hear from you. I want to hear about all the different things people are doing. Privacy is definitely something I need to focus a lot more on. And yeah, it's something I will be attacking, but I do want it to be kept easy for me. I know I always say that. And you're like, you fucking lazy bastard, Pete. But honestly, I want it like that because I want it like that for everyone. And I want things to be easy to use. Because I imagine most users, especially people like, like I always talk about my friends and my family, you know, getting them to even buy Bitcoin is hard enough. Getting them to get that off the exchange onto like a hardware wallet is really difficult. A node, most of them is beyond them. And, and getting them to think about privacy and trying to get them to download something like Wasabi wallet, it, it's really, really hard. It's almost too far, right? It's almost too far. So if this is all abstracted away for people, I think that's going to be a really good thing. Also, I just want to give a massive shout out to the Human Rights Foundation for funding this work with Chris. It's a very cool thing they're doing. I think the Human Rights Foundation are a massive friend of Bitcoin and we all know and love Alex, which is very, very cool. So very cool of them. Uh, they are accepting donations. So if you want to contribute to this, you can find out more in the show notes. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, go and check out my other show, Defiance. I've got part three of my Stephen Mnuchin audio series out. It's called Robin Hood. That's available at defiance.news. You're going to feedback on that or on this show. As I said, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 